Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Welcome back, faithful listeners. I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. And coming to you pre-recorded for my Mid-City Bar 12-Mile Limit, it's time for Around with Steve and Cole. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. A happy New Year. This is our first episode of 2018 with a round of Stephen Cole. This is Cole coming at you from 12 Mile Limit with my partner in crime, the Shadow King of New Orleans. Is that it? <laughs> Still going with the Shadow King of New Orleans? Why not? Excellent. Yeah, my sister called me that the other day, and uh, that was weird. So my it sister That must mean she's listening to the podcast. She listens yeah, to the podcast. One of our dozens of listeners. Yeah, so she, uh, she sent me a Christmas gift, and I was like, the greatest gift of all was that you're downloading my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's Mr. Steve Yamada, everybody. Shadow King of New Orleans. Joining us once again, one of our favorite guests from season one of Around with Stephen Cole is Mr. Neil Bodenheimer, Bodenheimer. <laughs> something like that, um, of Cure Co., uh, which is currently uh, Cure and Cane and Table. Uh, but Neil has entered into an agreement to purchase, along with the Solomon Group, Tales of the Cocktail. So a lot of people here uh, are in New Orleans and probably around the country and world are curious about what Tales looks like moving forward. So we're going to talk a little bit about Tales today. We're going to talk about what it has looked like up to now, what it's meant to all of us and our careers, what it means to the city of New Orleans, and then a little bit about what the future might hold. Uh, caveat to our listeners, as of this recording, the sale has not been finalized, so there will be things that Neil is not at liberty to discuss. So forgive us if there are, are some things that you want to know that we might not be able to share with you at this time. Um, we will do what we can. Right. Uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's just jump on in. Sure. Uh, I guess the thing is, and and this has been a an issue that is not I won't say plagued, but it's been the elephant in the room of this podcast since we started it. Because you know, ever since we started this podcast, Tales of the Cocktail has been beleaguered, and it has been an issue that we just really haven't addressed for the most part. And I think one of the big issues, big reasons for that, is that. Me and Cole, uh, we have benefited very much from Tales of the Cocktail. You know, mm-hmm. there's been good things, there's been bad things, and it's just we don't have an individual perspective to look at Tales of the Cocktail and say, uh, and take a, a big stance one way or another. And I don't think it's fair for a lot of people to t- kind of take these like hardline stances on Tales of the Cocktail because it's such a complex organization when it comes down to it. I mean, were there leadership problems? Definitely, I think. Were there communication issues? Definitely. But I don't think anybody can look at it and say Tales of the Cocktail has been bad. 100% across the board. You know, or good 100% across of, the board. Or good 100% yeah. across I mean, the board. It, like any other large and influential organization, it's, it's made some missteps along the way. Um, but yeah, let's, let's, I guess, jump in and say what is, uh, what is Tales meant for your, the trajectory of your career, Neil? Um, first of all, thanks, thanks for having me. And um, I mean, Tales has meant almost everything for my career. I mean, it was, I had a career before I went to Tales, and then I had a career after that. Um, I met one of my business partners at Tales, and um, it was you know 2007 outside of a spirit dinner that I met Kirk. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's had a profound impact on my on my career, and I think it's had a profound impact on the on the city of New Orleans. Was your first time attending Tales before you had a bar? Did yes. you? Yeah. So your you were your personal and professional history with Tales predates Cure. It does. Were you already living in New Orleans at the time? I was. Okay. I was. Yeah, I had just moved back 
and I heard about it, and I said, well, I'm going to go check it out. And um, and I ended up doing a, I was doing a spirited dinner where I worked, and it was, uh, got to work with, with uh, Paul Clark and Darcy O'Neill, and it was really. <laughs> Old school. Yeah, <laughs> and it was, it was, but it was really meaningful. And it was really great for me to get a chance to work with those guys. And, um, and it's, it's, it's really hard to kind of put my finger on, you know, an exact value of what Tails has done. But as I look at the impact on the city of New Orleans, it really has helped bring New Orleans into the modern cocktail era um, significantly. And it's also ended up bringing a lot of people to the city of New Orleans that work in our bars and restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But a lot of the people that come here in the, the mixology community of bartending come because of Tales for the first time and fall in love with the city and decide that they are going to make it their home. Uh, I, that was Kirk, right? That was why it was his first New Orleans trip. Or no, is he? Kirk's, no. Kirk's from the West. Oh, he, oh yeah. 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 He's from, he's from yeah, so, totally. yeah, okay. so Kirk. <laughs> Never mind. And so Kirk grew up in Marrero. Um, <laughs> and he was, he was displaced after Katrina. Mm. But um, when he first moved back, um, he was he was hanging out with um, with uh, the late Rob Cooper at, uh, mm. at a spirit dinner, and that's how we met. Um, and it was, you know, when we when we became fast friends and eventually business partners. Yeah, Steve, how about you? What what are your what are some of your professional experiences with Tails? And- so Tails was kind of a um, so one of the things that I really am kind of realizing at this point with the industry that I enjoy is that I feel that there's a lack of gatekeeping at this point, which is a good thing. There seem to be certain like barriers that you had to overcome to like make it in this industry or establish yourself as a bar professional. Um, so for me, like that major gatekeeping element was Tales of the Cocktail. It's like if I wanted to be a serious bartender in New Orleans, I had to get involved with Tales of the Cocktail. Like to, to really be taken seriously, I had to be a cap. That was a major goal for me. It was to be a member, uh, to participate in the Cocktail Apprentice Program or Tales. And for those who don't know, the Cocktail Apprentice Program is a, uh, they're basically bartenders who come from all across the world and they're a volunteer group that does all the batching and does a lot of the execution for the events during Tales of the Cocktail. Um, it's a really great education on back of the house uh, event planning. Um, it's a lot of work and basically it's like every single day is like a 12 hour long day. It's running up and downstairs. It's July. We're wearing like chef coats and things like that. Uh, I applied for that program for three years before I got in. Um, so like that was difficult. And I was, I was, you know, literally like nobody bartender at that time. Like I had been bartending for like, you know, so many years, but had just got into craft cocktail bartending. So I didn't really have a resume that could really stand out, but you know, it really drove me to do contests, to build that resume up, to do bar smarts and things like that. So that, uh, my resume would stand up and that I have an application that could really shine a little bit to get into this program. Um, I also met several people who had been caps in the past. That's how I met Christine Janine, how I met Chris Hanna and Rhiannon and, you know, pick their brains on like, you know, how I could get into that program. And they pointed me in the direction of being able to juice over there. Actually, I've got the, the cocktail apprentice tattoo on my arm, actually, which is a <laughs> pineapple with the Kappa symbol on there. And on my tattoo, I've got a, uh, a, a lemon that's on there as well because I juiced for like two and a half years uh, before I actually made it into the CAP program as well. So, And that was a big help from uh, Ian Julian, who yeah. I worked with at Victory Bar, who was uh, 
he did kind of the same trajectory as me as well as like you know worked in the juicing program and finally was able to cap and then after the year he capped i think that's when i got to do it and then i was lucky enough to come back and uh uh, they've got a system there that basically you start off as a red coat and then you know there's a next leadership tier where you're a gray coat and then black coat and then white coat so i i got to come back as a gray coat one year and then after that i was opening latitude 29 so i didn't really have time to dedicate the entire week of tales of the cocktail Mm -hmm. to uh volunteer a really interesting thing for me to learn about um, as we've taken a look at tales is just I always knew that the cap program was special but as you as you dig into it you realize just how meaningful it's been to to so many people and 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 what, and what people learn doing it yeah I, I'd say like when whenever anybody starts to whenever I start getting negative about tales or when people do get negative about tales of the cocktail I can always point towards the cap program and the work that like Don Lee and John Derrigan have put into that and all the great people have really contributed to that program and I think that it has been a very good asset to tales that's that's my favorite thing about tales of the cocktail the one that I'll always point to and be like this is a very valuable thing I kind of feel like I might have missed out a little bit on the cap program I think part of it was that sort of early career professional and un- a completely undeserved uh, professional pride is like what am I going to be an apprentice somewhere I'm a professional I know what I'm doing I don't need to apprentice somewhere to learn so there was a bit of a like a pushback there but also especially when I was working downtown uh, taking a week off during July during the only week in July that was at all busy just seemed like a non-starter for me like I didn't I couldn't afford to go work for free instead of doing like work, like I guess that, well, that one week where you could guarantee to make money. If there's a little less of an opportunity cost now that I'm in mid city. That the the economic impact of tails, I mean, it's it's f- certainly felt in that a lot of our service industry regulars will come in in the following weeks and spend the money that they've made. But there's less of a direct economic impact here than there was when I was working downtown. Um, but I remember that like some of my earliest real in cocktail experiences were tails and tail and some of the, my biggest. Uh, um, milestones in my career were tales related. One of them was the first time I uh, worked even as support staff at a spirited dinner. That was a very eye-opening experience. Uh, Charlotte Voisey was, uh, with William Grant and Sons, was the uh, mixologist for that dinner when I was at Coquette. And just seeing how they operated, how professionally they all wor- composed themselves, the quality of the drinks, everything top to bottom was, was a really... Like wow, these are these people were operating at a completely different level than I was capable of at the time. And then a couple of years later, when I was the that person at Coquette for another spirited dinner, um, to be able to do that myself felt very meaningful and like a real pivot point in my career. And so Tales offered me that opportunity. But well before that, also I think Tales of the Toddy was something that Tales offered to the New Orleans community. That there were a lot, there's not a lot of opportunities that got all, because Tales, one of the criticisms of Tales, and we can talk a little bit more about that later, is that it doesn't always meet its own, uh, desires for local representation. Um, but Tales of the Toddy really helped balance that out. And it was the closest thing we had to a real New Orleans bartender showcase. And I got a lot of good exposure. I did very well when they, when they had contests that were tied to it. And, it was it was just a really great party and it was the best it was the most New Orleans bartenders in one place at one time all year. Yeah. And they didn't actually do a Tales of the Toddy a, like a physical party this year. There's some online and uh, nat- international promotion for Tales of the Toddy, but it's it's being handled a little differently this year and I I for one have missed that and I'm hopefully we can get well, something along yeah. those lines that might come back. Well, the, and what your listeners may not know is that, is that you were a champion one year. I remember that. <laughs> two years. Two that years was in a row. That was so. second place. <laughs> those years too. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, to, I remember so. your, your uh, Sapine cocktail. 
Oh yeah, that was that was the first. That was that was the second year that I won. The first one I had a a drink with uh, green crush. chartreuse and orange <laughs> crush that was delicious. And the second year was basically it was a sapine cocktail, which is a, a pine needle liqueur that's sort of a chartreusey drink. Um, and I made a toddy with that. That was exactly the same template I use for my normal toddy, except with uh, lime instead of lemon and sapine instead of whiskey. And it was. It was a crowd pleaser yeah, <laughs> for well, sure, and it worked. It's people all about loved keeping it. it simple, right? Yeah, and it's some, yeah, that's one of the things I tell people when they're bartending events. People always want to showcase technique at events. It's like that's the wrong time to be showcasing technique. You want some? I've I've done that before. I've done that before at Toddy when I was like I had a whipped eggnog latte drink that I did one year, and I was like, this is no everything. I was like batch it all. Like, okay, got to heat it. That's the one prep step. <laughs> then everything else was just super Man, easy. I completely disagree. I think, like, things like that is when I want to show off. I mean, like, every time I got to do toddy, like, I always did something crazy. Like, the year I got second place to your Orange Crush drink, Cole, uh, my drink was uh, a butter fat, a brown butter fat wash infused amaretto that I reconstituted the butter out and made a custard out of it. And then I did brioche French toast bites as, like, the garnish that I was cooking off to, like, order. It was a really good. For that me, was a good drink. For me, the, the yeah, but you didn't get to talk to people because you were making. <laughs> oh no, no, toast. I had an assistant, so I totally oh, okay. got to talk. Yeah. <laughs> for, yeah, for me, one of the important things, especially if you're doing something that has a like a crowd favorite element, is being able to serve as many people as possible is key. So one of the reasons to simplify everything in those in that context is that you're able to keep your line moving quickly, and people will go back to the lines, right. even if it's not their favorite drink, they'll go back to the lines that move. Yeah. I think um, to me as well, like Tales of the Toddy is an interesting thing for me because I feel that it represents a little bit of like some of the problems with Tales of the Cocktail as well. Like that event just grew and grew and grew, and there was no need for that event to like really grow. Like I understand the idea of having more bartenders there, but there's to me uh, there's a responsibility issue that has to be met as well. Like mm. if you have people serving one ounce servings and you have 20 25 bars there and like you know there's no limit to the number of cocktails and actually if it's a, a crowd driven contest so then everybody who's going feels like they have to try every single drink that's irresponsible service when it comes down to it too that's I, true that's, I remember, you're, you're, that's like, a recipe point. for over serving yeah, people. later later on with some of those events it's just you know you had people who were just way way over served coming to those events and it's just like it really to me trashed the atmosphere of that or you're in a cavern and, like, you know, you just don't see, like, you know, you're in a huge, like, expo hall, and you just don't get to see, like, the people you want to see, you know? Like, I don't think there's a problem with things like being exclusive. I like the inclusive ex exclusivity thing, but it kind of detracted from the event a little bit where it just became... The exclusivity know. thing was kind of a double-edged sword, though, because I remember one of the criticisms of Toddy down as it, as it evolved is that while there became... As New Orleans has grown as a scene, and there are more and more craft bartenders of, of note in New Orleans, it became harder and harder to include all of the people. So eventually, after my two, uh, after the two years that I was victorious in Tales of the Toddy, um, they stopped letting me participate. And, and then the year after that, they like a lot of the people that had participated before, they just didn't invite back because they wanted to bring in fresh talent. So a lot of the people that had made this a fixture of their calendars around the holiday season were a little resentful that they weren't participating that year and but it did open it up to a lot of new people yeah but was, then there was always a couple people who would do it every single year too so like still do that it whole no like what, we yeah. want new people to come in but then it's like you know i love chris hanna but chris hanna was always there abigail was always there you mm -hmm. know like they're always i mean those are the people you definitely need to kind of bolster an event like that but it's weird to be in that middle tier where like you know i'm at like maybe i guess you are <laughs> if you got that email saying oh we want new people to be there and it's just like oh wait a minute what about 
the 20 people over there who have done this every single year. Yeah. It's, it's a little it's, weird. It's, it's a tricky balance. I don't envy them trying to put that together in an equitable way. Well, and also, I mean, you have to think about, you know, it, it was an event that had to grow. Yeah. Because they had to make sure they were making money. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Well, let's start, let's start with a little bit of our personal history. We've done that. How about for your bar or bars? So I know Cure, we, they had that bus for for one the first year they had the bus and it was a, it was huge bonkers bonanza and then sort of diminishing returns after that with with the bus is my it, understanding. It, well, no, it was but, good for a few for for a few years. Okay, it started off um, when it was a single bus. It was it, it was great. I think it started off with with uh, Brugal mm. doing the bus and then and then eventually Craft um, and Estate took over. I forget what they were called before. Um, American Still Life. I mm. think. Um, and so they took over and, uh, and did the bus and it was actually a great vehicle for a brand that, that had multiple, you know, for, for a company that had multiple brands because they were able to actually present on the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did a uh, pre-bottle cocktails on the bus. So I remember yeah. that. And so, and so then they get to, it was, it was, it was Cure and Belloc at that time that we were doing it. And, um, so it would go from the Monteleone to Belloc, or no, it would go from the Monteleone to, from the Monteleone to Cure and then to Belloc, and then back to the Monteleone. Mm-hmm. And it was good because we, we ended up being able to, um, we, we made a menu with them, and, and so we were able to give them an extension of what they were, what they, how they wanted to market. And it was, it was great for a while, but as more and more programming came into tails, it was just got harder and harder to keep people's attention. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's got to be a little bit difficult as well from the brand side and from the venue side when it came with the sponsorship fees as well, too. With It's like, hey, there's such an upfront cost to, like, you know, you know, do this official event. And if you want to do the right thing with Tails, it's like, you know, oh, but maybe nobody's going to show up kind of thing. Well, and that's and, and that's always, I think, been one of the big challenges for the for the events that are in local venues is um, how does Tails make its fee in how do the brands spend their money responsibly and how does the venue make its money? And mm-hmm. there's always, that's always been a pressure point, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that, that when, when Tails would approach me with programming that they thought would be a good fit for 12 Mile, which they did a couple of times, uh, we were always happy to participate, but nothing ever really in it. And it was good publicity, but it, it almost never worked out from a, to a money-making event from the bar standpoint. There were, cause the fees involved, the brands had, the, it, it just, it didn't quite, yeah, it was hard to monetize. Yeah, um, and th- there was always an incentive to provide a, sort of an ultra premium experience level for guests, and then with capping that you wanted to make sure you were competitively priced next to the other events that were going on at the same time. Uh, it, yeah, it was it was it was a little tricky. Yeah. Um, so I haven't sought out. We we did a, we, the first few years the twelve mile limit was open. We had several different. Uh, we did a spirited dinners here a couple of years. We did a dynamic duo once. And then the last couple of years, I haven't actually sought out any tales related program. We had a bus once. Um, the bus, when we did it was a little bit tricky because we were trying to find a lower end sponsor. It was, I was working with Benji over at the Saint and we wanted to have sort of a low end bus and the high end bus. And the high end bus could be like the Cure Bellock bus. And then the low end bus we were planning on, it would be like 12 mile limit of the Saint bus. And like, look at, and because one of the features of the New Orleans cocktail community is that there are more options here for low-end cocktail experiences there in other cities. And yeah. I think that's something that separates us from other markets. And I wanted to showcase that. Um, 
but they also paired us with Craft and Estate. We were aiming, I wanted to have what I was going to call the Fireball Hell Bus. <laughs> give somebody a shot of fire, or like, or like a 50 mil uh, bottle of Fireball. Fireball rum And a PBR. Basically, yeah, a <laughs> yeah, Fireball rum shot of me. And then give them that on the bus. So having, having a different experience, but working with the, the, the a, a very premium catalog like Craft and Estate had with that side, like with 12 Mile Limit and The Saint, it was, there was a cognitive dissonance there. And also having two buses that year just split that in half. So I imagine that you probably saw less on the bus that year. That was the, that was the last year that we did the bus. Yeah. That was, that was the last split, year they did any bus, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it split the crowd. And, um, but ultimately, I think it had, it, it had run its course. Yeah. And, yeah. and Uber like showed up like the next year, right? That's so, true. I mean, that's, that's, yeah. that's, Uber had, and, and Airbnb, while, while also being problematic in a lot of ways, has done a lot to decentralize tourism. In New Orleans, so there are a lot of more people staying in neighborhoods around like that around Cure, like that around Twelve Mile Limit, that would all have been concentrated downtown before. That's right, um, you know, for better or for worse. Yeah. yeah. Now for Latitude, I mean, Latitude only being open for three years, and when I was a GM over there, um, we got approached with many events, and we're just absolutely not. It's just <laughs> like we were three blocks away from the Montleone, and like we were the first bar open. Jeff, the Beach Bum Berries Bar, like he's been presenting Tales every single year that Tales has been around, I think. Um, so we're just, we can't like, you I mean, we can't like, and I think that's a, the, the big thing with like restaurants and bars. It's just like, you know, you want to participate, but any, you know, there's that fine balance. It's not even a fine balance really, but it's like spirited dinners at some point, like they just don't make a ton of sense. You know, they were, they were fun. And I think I got a lot of good experience working spirited dinners back in the day, but now knowing more of the financial side of it, it's like, damn, like giving up basically an entire night's worth of service. Cause Every spirited dinner I've been to always runs like three hours long. You know, taking that out of your prime like dining section and everything like that, like you are sacrificing a night where you could be making money. And also, in and of that self too, it's like you know, for an event that really we're trying to highlight New Orleans, what we do as New Orleanians, the products that we have to offer, the drinks, the food, the music, the experiences, and things like that, to go off the map and then to like feature somebody who's not from New Orleans, uh, which is a big issue with I think a lot of the like current programming. Um, and then to do something that you just don't typically do. Like, this is a menu that we're catering specifically for this event. It, it almost detracts to me, like, you know, from that dining experience or from that bar experience or something. I think yes and no. Mm-hmm. And I think it depends on, I think it depends on what you're, on the kind of business your restaurant gets over that time. Mm-hmm. If you, I mean, let's, let's be honest, it's the, the wastelands of, of mid, mid July. Yeah. So I think if your restaurant needs, needs some traffic or wants the extra traffic, it's great. I think if, uh, if you're already getting traffic, it's a really bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it depends on the landscape of your restaurant, too. If you have an event space that is, is dedicated to things of that nature, that you don't have to sacrifice your main dining room, you can do it on top of that business, then by all means, I, I would recommend it. But if you are shutting down for the night and doing this instead, then it might not be the best fit for your venue. Yeah, yeah I fully agree. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget in our first year of Cure in, in 09. We um we did a spirited dinner when we have you know the tiniest tiny kitchen yeah it was, uh, <laughs> it, was it, it was difficult but um and then we had people showing up in cabs because obviously Uber wasn't what well, wasn't a thing back then and, and and not pounding on our door we couldn't let them in because we'd given the space for a spirited dinner yeah and, and then there was it. nothing on Fred at the time either to do, so. <laughs> so we ended up clearing the courtyard and just pouring um, sparkling wine for everybody oh dope. And Danny DeVito came by and was all pissed off. He couldn't drink. It was pretty funny. Oh, oh, he was, he was, he was <laughs> <laughs> He 
Nice. Uh, we're going to take a break here in just a couple of minutes. But, but first, I also wanted to talk a little bit about... I don't know much about the Solomon Group, but they are a big part of the, the buying team. Do you want to so, talk about how well, that came to be, why they're involved, and how they got you involved? Well, technically, it's the, it's the Solomon family. Solomon family. Okay. So, um, so Gary Solomon Jr. owns Solomon Group, which is in the production business. And they've actually produced a lot of different events for Tales. So they're, so they're very... Yeah, they were involved with the Spirit of the Awards. Yeah. Like, then, yeah, and, absolutely. Okay. Um, and so there's a familiarity of the event from that side. Um, but they, they wanted to... They were looking for a philanthropic uh, outlet. And so they saw Tales uh, much in the same way that, that Hogs for the Cause is able to use an event and raise for charity as something that could maybe be you know, even more meaningful because you have so much money coming from all over the yeah. U.S. and the world. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I, that's one of the things when you, you hear the cost of some of these parties that are happening. It's like this was a uh, you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like the the price tags I've heard for some of these like mega parties that happen at Tales of the Cocktails. Just like I always think back, and there's there's a certain amount of like you know leftover Catholic guilt I think <laughs> crushing my soul. Where it's like you know for a fraction of that money, like if that if if we took away some of those elements that like money is basically just being you know wasted for paid advertisement and it got funneled back into the community and it is in a way where you're hiring local when you hire local businesses and catering companies that's one way to do it but if there's just that some a portion of that money is just going back into charity it's just you know it's just like I think that could be hugely impactful for the city well, well, and, 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 and I think it will be and I think that you know the great thing is that they're committed to using part of the money to go back to industry related stuff for you know the spirit and cocktail business and that's where I think we can tackle some of the tush, you know, some of the tough issues that are that are in front of us right now. And then they're also going to put a portion of it back into New Orleans. So, you know, as I look at it, it's a it's a huge win win for 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 us particularly in New Orleans. One of the uh, we were going to talk a little bit about some of the issues that have presented themselves for Tails under the previous administration in the second half of our episode. But since we're already on the topic, the nonprofit status of Tails is something that I think has been a little bit confusing for people up until this point. I the there for those who might not be aware that the under the previous administration there are sort of two branches of Tails. There's a for-profit company called Mojo 911 that is a sort of an event production company. Uh, that employs a number of people that you think of as, as the tail staff. Um, and then there's a nonprofit, the New Orleans Culinary and Cultural Preservation Society. And NOCCPS took a lot, took in a lot of the money that went to tails. They, they donated some money, but their mission was, was educational and community development. So, and they certainly succeeded in that, in that they were educating people about cocktails and they were bringing people to New Orleans. So success in all of those, but they didn't donate a considerable amount of money relative to what they brought in. Their mission was that educational and community development. And it, to that end, most of the money that came in went to the for-profit Mojo 911. And again, that employed a lot of people, but because that was a for-profit company, they didn't have to be as forthright with their numbers. And so a lot of people looked at it and they said, oh, this for-profit company is taking the lion's share of the money that's going to this non-profit company, which created a lot of misconceptions about the organization fueled a lot of the rumors about the organization that may or may not be true i don't, I don't think we'll ever necessarily know exactly how a lot of that money was spent because again there's a private company that was tied to but so now people are looking at it and they're saying oh it was always nocccps I, i've seen people questioning online because part of the messaging around the new ownership is that it's going to be fully nonprofit. so if, can we talk a little bit about the difference between 
how it was structured before and the intent of the new administration. Well, is that I, something you can talk about now? <laughs> I mean, I can talk a little bit about it. I mean, I think you did a, a pretty good job. Um, You've done your research, Cole. <laughs> I, I, you've obviously done your research. It was I about 500 a, Facebook threads worth of information <laughs> into like three sentences. And I think you did a pretty good job of breaking it down. I, I think I, I think Ann and Paul did spend a lot more money than people think um, on charitable endeavors. Um, but if you look at if you look at it as a percentage, there was a for-profit wing of the company, and 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 that was for-profit. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, I think moving forward. I think the great thing is is that this is something that the Solomons want to do as a, as a gift for New Orleans, and they want to do it as a gift for the industry because they look around and they say that we, we already give away a substantial amount of money every year. How do, we, how do we make sure that we have something that's kind of self-perpetuating? Okay. And, um, and that where we can tackle big, you know, big issues in the industry and where we can also do some good locally. And that's, I mean, it really was as simple as that. Cool. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Uh, Steve's going to whip up a drink for us, and then we'll be back in just a couple minutes. All right. We're about to hop behind the bar. Steve's going to be making our drink this week. What do you got for us this week, Steve? Ooh, a super original drink. Actually, that's a lie. It's not a super original drink. But it is a really great twist on a classic cocktail. Uh, I, I don't want to say forgotten classic cocktail, but it's definitely one that is overlooked because it looks a little bit weird. But it is a really fantastic drink, especially during this time of the year, um, and especially as an after-dinner drink. We're talking about the Stinger. The Stinger. It is one of my favorite overlooked classic cocktails. People don't order stingers because you look at it like this there's no way this is going to be a balanced drink and then once it's an execution it's really good yeah and i think it's it 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 speaks to the point of like when people say oh i need a balanced cocktail i need a balanced cocktail it's like this isn't particularly a balanced cocktail it's a unified flavor but i i think that like you don't always have to have a balanced cocktail if you're trying to get a specific flavor or feeling across yeah you don't want to go overwhelmingly in one direction or another but have a cocktail that's more bitter or have a cocktail that's more sweet or have a cocktail that's more sour that's fine i think yeah. other people from other countries look at sort of the, the way americans drink or eat also and they're like why yeah. why well like why do you why do you something you market as a sour have just as much sugar in it as it does lemon juice you know yeah. it's like the we don't have a lot of pe- of things that go in one direction or another, but that's fine. Some people just want something that's right. bitter and not bittersweet. Or I mean, so many great drinks. It's like a pina colada is a perfect example. That's as well a sweet too. drink. I mean, it's it's a sweet drink, and, and it's supposed to be. Not supposed to be balanced. It's supposed and to be love that way. It. Exactly. Also, people say I don't want anything too sweet. Yeah, you do. Yeah, they do. The same people would drink a Coke. And that's mean, one of the. That's like a third sugar. Oh yeah, it's like I, I don't want it. I don't want anything too sweet. Uh, I'll just take a Jack and Coke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're. That's you a don't very, know what you very want. sweet drink. Anywho, uh, <laughs> so not a pina colada, not a Jack and Coke. We're making a stinger today. Uh, it's very simple. It's a two-ingredient shaken cocktail. Uh, we're going to start off with our benevolent sponsor uh, from the uh, Infinium Spirits portfolio. We've got Bronca Menta. This is going to be uh, the overlooked cousin of Fernet Bronca, which I think takes most of the credit out of those two uh, products. There are two ingredients. I th- actually, I think from what I understand, I, somebody can write in and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's only one ingredient that is in Bronca Menta that is not also in Fernet Bronca, and that's sugar. Really? Bronca Menta, yeah, Bronca Menta has more mint, but there is mint in Fernet Bronca, but there is no sugar added to Fernet Bronca, and there is sugar in Bronca Menta, which actually makes it a lot more approachable. Yeah, actually, yeah. Yeah. 
definitely. It's uh the the big thing is there's a uh, that menthol quality comes out a lot more. It comes across as a really nice kind of pepperminty flavor. We're using the Broncomentha in subs to, as instead of the traditional ingredient, which would be creme de month inside of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just a lovely. Lovely addition. It adds a lot more characteristic to this mm-hmm. drink and really brings it. Yeah, creme de menthe is essentially just a mint liqueur, and I don't say that as a bad way. But there's a, it's a single flavor profile that you're getting, whereas Branca Menta has mint as a very as the dominant flavor mm-hmm. profile, and then it has dozens of other herbal components that make it a very interesting uh, cocktail addition. Awesome. And the second half of this drink is just going to be uh, a nice cognac of brandy. We're using a brandy with this drink. It's going to be in equal proportions to the bronca, uh, bronca menta. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditional recipes will vary anyway from equal parts to uh, two to one. Um, but like I said, it's a sweet drink. You don't want to. You don't want to neglect the liqueur in this. It is also one of the only drinks that does not have juice that is traditionally shaken. So for whatever reason, this has always been a shaken cocktail, even though it exclusively has liqueurs and spirits. Does not have juice. Uh, it might just be about getting that third component, which is the water in, yeah. in there. I think it's supposed to be a bracer as well, too. So I mean, they really want that cold with that, like you know, mm-hmm. and it'll, it'll incorporate the, uh, the the gas that you get when you shake it. It makes something a little fizzier yep. and brighter and lighter. So when shaking, you have that. shaking cocktail, shaking it up. Yeah, shake that drink. I will say it's not one of the prettiest cocktails in the world. It's not a. I mean, when you when you make it, it the the Branca Menta is going to make it a lot uh, more opaque. But one of the one of the aspects of it, if you're using a, a, a white creme de menthe as opposed to a, a, a green creme de menthe, it actually does look fairly pretty. Um, it's just a, it's a, a pale straw color. This one's a little bit darker, a little bit more opaque because yeah. of the uh, of the mint liqueur that we have chosen. Yes. But it's not unattractive. It's just a brown drink. Most drinks are brown. Yeah, up and brown's a little bit weird sometimes. Fair enough. Anywho, uh, so that's going to be our stinger. It's uh, good with this cold weather that we've been having. Um, it's a really good digestive drink, honestly. Too. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's an excellent nightcap. Agreed. Yep. Kind of uh, one to finish off. So anyways, uh, let's take this drink back over to our studio. <laughs> and uh, we'll get on with this episode. All right. Thanks. And uh, join us for part two. And we're back with the second half of our Tales of the Cocktail-centric episode, Tales of the Cocktail 2.0, maybe I should say. I'm here with my co-host, T. Cole Newton, and our fantastic guest, Neil Bodenheimer. Yeah. That's all I got. (laughs) That that is true. That's who's here this week. (laughs) Uh, We talked a little bit about all of our personal and professional histories with Tales in the first half of this episode, and I want to talk about now, to the extent that, uh, that we're capable of doing so, some of the issues that people have had both locally and nationally with with tails under 1.0 through 1.5 or whatever tails is kind of up to now because it's evolved a lot over the years and i think a lot of the issues seem to come back to a single theme which is representation so a lot of the issues that people have uh that involve the way that Tails cracks down on outside programming has to do with small brands finding representation. A lot of the issues that people have with how Tails has handled diversity in the industry comes back to representation. A lot of the issues that people have with whether or not Tails has provided enough of a venue for local talents and local uh Comes down to representation. That's it. Hey, you got it. Nailed it. It's a theme now. Picked um, up on it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's. I mean, representation is a big issue. So a lot of and a lot of the issues that people have had with tales have come down to that. I think one of the biggest ones, and I think I mean, you can almost point to almost 
the biggest reason that there is a Tales 2.0 has to do with the narrative around race specifically. So I think we should probably, we, I think we would be derelict in our duty if we're examining this to not talk about, about race. How much of the race conversation plays into the fact that this is a New Orleans-based event as well, too? I mean, you know, New Orleans is a, it's a black city. It really is, you know? And, like, you know, we've got this thing with, uh, with craft cocktail bartending where, like, representation may not be, is not high, unfortunately. It's a very, you know, very white, like, you know, representation. Like, with a lot of the events, with a lot of the bars and bartenders and the faces of, like, you know, these brands and, and whatnot as well, too. It's just, you know, how much of that drives this narrative a little bit? So you think that maybe the conversation about race wouldn't have reared its head if Tails was in Omaha? Or, um, I mean, or for example, I don't know what the racial breakup of Omaha is, but I assume it's less black well, than New Orleans. There was not, there's not a Zulu parade in Omaha, Nebraska. So <laughs> true. That. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think it was gonna. I mean, I think it was is a conversation that was gonna happen, no matter where it was. Yeah, yeah. I, a I, catalyst. I think so. um, what steps? do you, you see Tails taking to address the issues of racial representation in the industry? There, after the incident last year during Zulu and the fallout from that and then bringing Paul back and the fallout from that, we don't need to rehash all of that again. You, you can Google it. <laughs> the Washington Post did what is probably the best article on it if you're interested. So just look there if you want the background there. But what is, what is Tails 2.0 planning to do to directly address race issues or... or is it just something that they plan on addressing, but the plans haven't been finalized yet? What are we looking at there? Well, I mean, look, I think it's, I think it's a really complex issue. And I don't think it's going to get solved in one year. I don't think it's going to get solved in two years. I think, it's, I think this is a year-by-year process of trying to figure out how we can fix this industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the great thing about what, about what we're going to do here is that we're going to set up an industry fund where we're going to write grants. And I think what I'm hoping to do is to get find ways to get uh, people of color um, more involved in tales. And I'm also hoping to find a way that we can write grants for people to make sure that, that if, if an industry, if, if, it, if an issue is important uh, to the industry overall, that we can, that we can siphon funds that way because ultimately money helps solve problems. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Is there, what's the plan for the diversity council? Is there a plan for one? Does that still exist? Uh, it, it, it sort of, there was a diversity council that Tails put in place after the precipitating events of last year. And then some of the leadership of the diversity council stepped down after the, after those issues came back again. It, what's the status of that? Do you have any, is there, is there a status of that? Is there, is there going to be an effort to bring that back or to reevaluate what that council could mean? I think that's, I think it's to be determined right now. I mean, I think, I think the, the thing you have to remember here is that, you know, this is a transaction that hasn't been closed. So there's things that we can do now as part of the diligence process, but there are things that, that we can't do yet. Yeah. Um, and I, right now what we're doing and our main goal is to do a lot of listening. Yep. And, and to try and figure out what we need to do to get things right. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the diversity council goes, too, um, I have heard that there were very productive conversations, and I'm very grateful for the amount of effort and work that the people who participated on the diversity council, what they put into that. Um, 
as a minority who lives in New Orleans as well, uh, I was a little bit insulted that uh, I had no access to it. There were several other people of color who were denied entrance into the, the initial meetings for the Diversity Council. And also, um, the timing was just really mm. deprioritized. I felt that was a bit of a slap in the face when it's like, we want to focus on this. And it was a meeting that took place at like 9 It was 9 a.m. on a Friday on morning. On a Friday morning. Yeah. After, after some, of the, some of the heaviest programming in yeah, terms after of the biggest, latest parties, parties of the night. Or on Thursday night, yeah. It's just... Yeah completely just I think that was a that was an issue that I had with some of the ways that Tails is addressing other social issues because they they made a, a conscious effort to do programming related to sexual assault prevention which I think as an industry we definitely need to be involved in that conversation and part of the solution there because of the role that alcohol plays in so many sexual assaults and I think I've, I've over half just uh, colloquially, the, not colloquial, sorry, uh, anecdotally, that's the word I'm looking for. I was talking to somebody who works in a, in one of the, uh, health centers on Tulane campus, and they said that over half of the sexual assaults that they deal with at the health center involve alcohol. That it's so often used as essentially a date rape drug, uh, or to, to mask the fact that an assault has happened. That as, as purveyors of alcohol, as people who make our living off of alcohol, if we are not actively working against that then we are perpetuating the problem so i I, kudos to tails for for recognizing that i think tails is sort of they've gotten a little bit of a a hard time for for some of the ways they've addressed uh sexual assaults that happened during tails um but from when i have approached them with issues i found the leadership to be very responsive to those concerns and they instituted programming. But one of the things that I had a complaint about was that the programming that they did related to sexual assault during Tales 2017 was at the exact same time as the programming that they did related to uh, environmental stewardship in bars. So you basically had to make a, a it was a devil's bar. It's like, okay, it's 10 a.m. on Wednesday. Am I going to save the earth or protect women? Where those, I, I, I can't do both. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, too, the sexual assault seminar or programming, rather, that they uh, that they provided was free and open to the public. Yes, as was the Which environmental was or sustainability programming or, or sustainability in bars. To the not entirely possible, but there are things you can do. Right. Um, yes, they were both free and open to the public. Which again, kudos. I think yeah. that was a, an excellent choice. But forcing people to make that devil's bargain was yeah. a little hard. Yeah, quite frankly, I mean, I think with a lot of these issues, it's just continuous programming is something that would be very nice. You know, people have busy schedules during Tales. A lot of people have their national meetings during Tales of the Cocktail. There's a lot of networking that's happening. People get pulled in different directions for, you know, jobs and, you know, hourly things. It's just, uh, I think the... You know, offering this programming on multiple occasions to fit into people's schedules, you know, that would be that'd be nice. You know, that would be good. I, I don't want the you mean multiple it. occasions not during tales or multiple times during during tales of the cocktail. So you know, if people are coming down here and you're just like okay, if it's only a one one chance to get it, then yeah, if yeah. it's one chance, there's a bigger chance that you can miss it. You know, or you know, like if these are things that people are super interested as well too, like you know, what's the chance that like there's no room left in some of these seminars or some of this programming as well? Like you know, making this information accessible in a more leisurely is not the quiet way but like just making it more lowering accessible. the barrier more, to answer. And, yeah Thank i mean I, th- I think that the lowering lowering the barrier to education in general is a big part of what tales 2.0 is going to look like mm-hmm. um and and i think that it's making sure that the the professionals that are down here can go to the seminars that they need that they want to go to and it's finding things that are that are part of the overall new mission statement of tales looking at diversity and looking at um equality and sexual assault and mm-hmm. um 
general health, alcoholism, mental wellness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's some some of these things need to be free. Yeah, when people come through, and it's uh, I just think it's a I think it's a huge part of what of what our industry needs right now. Yeah. When I went to um, Penny Arcade's uh, uh, conference, uh, it was a board game conference in Philadelphia that went to PAX Unplugged. Uh, one of the things I really loved about that conference was they had a uh, diversity lounge that was set up uh, that was uh, had basically it featured minority and uh, queer uh, game designers and gamers and things like that, and it was just a space where people could go and, like, you know, say, "Hey, here's somebody who looks like me." Is or, that where like, you found feminism, the role playing game? No, 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 no. I found I I saw somebody carrying that, that around. Uh, pretty awesome. While I was waiting in line, I saw somebody holding that, and I flipped through it, and I realized that it was absolutely f- the best, the best one shot RPG manual I've ever bought in my entire life. Uh, <laughs> It's a bit of a tangent, I guess. But well, no. I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I'm sitting here writing notes no. about what you guys. Are about. <laughs> yeah, check out hashtag feminism. Um, it's like a twenty dollar book, but it's basically all these modules uh, to address a lot of the issues with modern feminism, all designed by uh, women and uh, and queer game designers from around the world. It's it's really fantastic. I'm I'm not going to be able to moderate any of these games, but I, I'd love to see somebody actually do it. Um, wow, that's a weird tangent. <laughs> that was a bit of a weird tangent, but possibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. But we can also use that to pivot to like what it, I mean, having programming related to sexual assault. But also, is there anything that Tails can do that they haven't been doing to prevent uh, sexual assault and sexual violence, both during Tails and doing programming to help prevent to help bars prevent that? Is that what what can Tails do? What role can they stake out in that in that landscape? I mean, I think I think for Tails it has to revolve around education first and foremost. I mean, I think I mean if we look locally at a, at a, at a in an organization like like a Medusa, um, there as they get going, their biggest goal is going to be education and making sure people understand when you're in, when you're in a work environment or when you're out and you see like if you're a bartender and you see the beginnings of sexual assault happening, what do you do? And I'd say a lot of bartenders don't necessarily know how to spot it and what to do with it. And so ultimately it becomes, it's about awareness and it's about knowing what to do when you're, when you're confronted with that situation. Mm-hmm. To Tail's credit, I wrote an essay specifically about ways that bars and bartenders can, can help prevent sexual assault on, in their bars. Um, and it was published by Tales of the Cocktail. So you, if you, you can still find on talesofthecocktail.com that essay I wrote about seven ways that bars can help and bartenders can help prevent that. Yeah. So they, it's not like, again, it's not like they haven't tried to address that and provide educational yeah. resources for that. Yeah, so I mean, look, that's I mean, been part of the mission for a long I mean, time. I mean, Tales was, is, wasn't perfect. Um, I can assure you Tales 2.0 will not be perfect either. Damn it. Um, <laughs> Sharpen the pitchforks. <laughs> I, but, uh, but I think that, I think that they always tried and I think that, that we're always going to try as well. And you know, that's, I think that's the best you can do in life. And that's what we're going to do. Okay, cool. Uh, the next thing I'd, I, I would like to talk about, which I think is a little more, I mean, it's probably one of the, it's less hard to address than some of the other things we started off with uh, this segment. Uh, but New Orleans representation at Tales of the Cocktail. This has been something I've been trying to champion for a long period of time. I think that uh, uh, me and many other people in our community, um, I as big of an event as Tales of the Cocktail is, and as much as it's done for the community, I'm almost a little bit surprised that it just doesn't seem to have the lasting impact that I would think an event like this should have. Um, perfect example, I think, is with the CAP program. Um, 
you know, I know it's a blind essay process and everything like that, but it's such a valuable resource. Like, why aren't we prioritizing New Orleans bartenders to be able to get into this program to go there so that we have lasting, strong leaders who have this kind of training and access to this kind of, you know, information within the community that can only help grow our community. Um, so, uh, what are your thoughts, Neil, about getting New Orleans bartenders a little more and service professionals more involved with Tales of the Cocktail? I mean, look, I mean, uh, we, we talked about this a little bit offline. Um, it's a challenge. And it's a challenge because you've got you know, one of our busiest weeks of the year happens to be in one of our slowest times of the year. And, and people that work in the service industry in, in New Orleans need, need to work and need the money um, in mid-July. And we also need to make sure that we're hosting the people that come through town. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. How do, you, how do you make time for people that don't have time to give? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I personally think that there's a way to, to, to champion New Orleans bartenders when it's not tails. Um, and maybe through some of the tails on tour stuff, maybe through some other events, but, um, I think it's, I think it's a challenge and I think it's something that it's going to take once again, year by year, taking a look, see what we do. Does this work? Does it not work? And then just trying to, just trying to keep it, keep it in mind as an issue and work towards it a little bit every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's progress is better than perfection, I guess. As a, as a goal, yeah. I mean, look, and that's, I mean, that's that's the way my mind works. I mean, the the idea is that you know you know nothing's going to be perfect, and you just try and you try and logically take a step forward every you know every time you do something. There you go. Um, I think a lot of people. Uh, I guess one more thing that we can talk about in terms of representation is small brands and the relationship they have with Tails. A lot of uh, the pushback that Tails has gotten is about how vehemently they try to have tried to clamp down on unofficial programming. I believe the it's rogue events. Rogue events. Yeah, rogue I, events. I call it dark tales. Dark tales. <laughs> <laughs> the tales underground. And I think that it's a bit of a double-edged sword because you, you want the brands that are paying for tales to get their money's worth. And so you have to at least demonstrate that you're making an effort to clamp down on those events. But I think that tales benefits and I think that the community benefits from those outside events existing. But they present a huge issue uh, with safety, if you're having people who are doing sanctioned events sign on to a code of conduct, perhaps, and the people that are doing outside events might not be involved. If you're, uh, you have people that are using Airbnbs, and we talked a little bit about that in the first half, that it, that is a, very much a double-edged sword. Um, but they're completely illegal in the French Quarter currently. So what what role does short-term rentals play? Um, but it's one of the ways that smaller brands and smaller brands have had less uh, access during tales than many of them would like have have gotten. So let's t- talking about both the role of outside events, the place for outside events, and the role of smaller brands and the place for small brands within Tales. You want to speak to that a little bit? What what sure what um, that looks like moving forward? Another really complex issue. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Never going to make it easy for you. Um, so um, Tales is always best when it's large brands and small brands, and I think we've seen that over the years. Um, I think that that there's always that always has to be a place for brands that are just getting started and for brands that are that are trying to get to the next level. Um, I think they're some of the most important people are in in our industry. Um, I, I think over the years it's gotten harder for them to do business at Tails, and, and I, I think that's I think that's something that that, that we need to figure out a way to change. Um, you know, it's. To me, it's you know, tails is an ecosystem, and you can't just you can't just have large players 
healthy. It has to be. It has to be large and small players for it to really be as dynamic as it can be. Mm-hmm. So I know you've been to some uh, unsanctioned events, Cole. I've definitely <coughs> been to yeah. many unsanctioned events. Have you ever been to an unsanctioned event, Neil? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know there used to be some large brands used to do unsanctioned events too, and those have largely fallen over the wayside. But one of the first real tales experiences that I have, I was working at Loa in the International House Hotel, and that year they hosted a Grand Marnier party on the Saturday during Tales. It was an unsanctioned event, and it was bonkers. Mm. And Anne sent out an email that went to basically everyone on the Tales mailing list a few days before that said, "This event is happening. You will don't go." And I really think that is. A, one of the reasons it was such a big party is because Babes and essentially advertised on behalf of that party by trying to get people not to go. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things like, you know, <laughs> if the principal says, don't go to this kid's house after school, everyone's going to go to that kid's house after yeah. school. I mean, that's just, that's just human nature. Now, how much of this is spawned? I mean, there's the urban legend of that one party that happened at the Saints. Like, you guys uh, yeah. heard about yeah, that yeah, one too. Yeah. I mean, how much of this spawns from that party? We'll we'll leave brand name specific out of this. I, I, you know, I don't actually think that it spawns from that party. I no. think it was. I, I think the I think the messaging was there from before that party. Mm-hmm. I just think that party uh, made everybody confront a few realities. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was uh, <laughs> that was that was that was one for the ages. Yeah, the- I do think that 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 at least talking to the ownership of the saint that that sort of soured the relationship between tails and the saint for several years, which mm. is a kind of a shame because of the, like the role that the saint plays in the new Orleans craft bar community is very outsized. Like the people yeah. are, people treat that place like an extension of their homes in this industry. Yeah. It's a waypoint really. Yeah. And to, to have that taken away from, from people visiting at least as an opportunity for any sanctioned events was not to anyone's benefit. And I, they definitely wound up, to the extent that there was one, on the blacklist for a few years yeah. after that party. Yeah, it seemed like it for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some instances as well too, where like uh, I, I've I've heard of you know blacklisting happening to certain people for what was perceived as being like unsanctioned events, which were just you know house parties as well. Like it's mm-hmm. like, hey, if there's like somebody who knows a bunch of people from ex champagne company and they're just you know hanging out and drinking bottles of champagne and posting pictures it's like that's not an unsanctioned event it's just a bunch of well, industry people to, cutting loose right i mean yeah i mean you have to use common sense here i mean like what's what's an event and what's a party and that's and that's i mean i can understand it's hard from you know if you're looking at it on social media mm-hmm. to know whether it's 500 people or five right but um you know i mean i i think that there's a common sense approach here mm-hmm. that can be used to try and try and allow people to still have a good time uh, without without shutting down every house party in the city. Cool. All right. Well, uh, we're we're kind of getting a little bit closer to the end right now. Um, I guess it'd be a good time to kind of go around the table and you know, uh, I'm sure we all have in our minds and very different perspectives and relevance, you know, as in proximity to this, um, the wish list that we would have for things that we'd like to see happen with tales of the cocktail um so it's just a couple bullet points a couple bullet points you might have that basically are things that you would like to see at tales of the cocktail um i'll lead off one thing i would really like to see more of is us is utilization of new Orleans resources outside of the service industry um especially musicians um i don't understand why there is a ton of money being spent at this point to bring in, you know, famous artists and things like that to have shows when we've got such a wide breadth of amazing musicians and things like that. I mean, if you want to get people hooked on and educate them about the city of New Orleans, 
we should be having New Orleans musicians play almost every single one of these parties. I agree with you on a, on a certain level, but I also really liked seeing Snoop Dogg last year at the Diageo house party. That was a bucket list of that was a bucket list item for me, and it was a great show. Yeah, but I mean, in the same vein, you could get Juvenile. You can give Juvenile and Manny Fresh to play probably for cheaper than Snoop Dogg, and it would be dope. That's fair, but they're not on my bucket list. <laughs> um, I would i I think the the local representation in both in the bar and and the greater world I think would be would be valuable. Um, but I would just I'd like to see a continued focus on on social justice issues. I'm an unabashed social justice warrior, and the way that alcohol can positively and impact and negatively impact uh different communities is an issue about which i care greatly so i i think tails has done a lot to move in that direction i would like to see us or, and then tails move further in that direction and i uh, have greater access to that programming and to the uh to yeah, the, the, that's the short version mm. Neil, anything, um, any, any wish lists? You, for should, have, you should have a long list, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I do. I mean, in, in some ways, and uh, this is going to sound really hokey, but in some ways, one of my biggest wishes came through, came, came true in that it was, um, and it tales was saved for New Orleans and is going to, is going to remain here for years to come. Um, and that was something that was really important to me as I started even looking to get involved. Um, it, it, it means so much to our city. Um, just, it's over eighteen million dollars in economic impact in in mid July, and you know you can, it's it seems very abstract, but I know what it would mean if to to cure and cane a table if, if tails wasn't here, and I know what it would mean to to latitude and to twelve mile. Yeah, mm-hmm. what's well, not abstract when you look at the bottom? Line. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so and, and and I also just looked long term at what it would mean for people that work in the service industry in this town. I mean, it really is, it's like a desert and it's a mini oasis in the desert at that time of year. And so would, would we become a more seasonal town if that wasn't here? And, and would, would people still, would people that live, that work in the service industry, would they still want to be here? Mm. And would we have a challenge of staying open during the summer? Yeah. What yep. would that do for the rest of our year? Save money. <laughs> yeah. That's what we used to have to do before tales. When I used to work at bubble gums, it's like you, you gave, we always had to give the, the speech basically about, all right, you're making money during Jazz Fest and during like, you know, spring and festival season and everything like that. It's going to dry up in the summertime. Save your money. Don't spend it now. It's hard for people, though, especially when so much of your income is cash and it, bartenders and service industry professionals in general aren't known for, yes. for being the squirrel. Being, We're known for being, being, adult for being the ants instead of the grasshopper. Yeah, adulting, adulting is hard. It's but, not instinctive but, but for a lot of people. it's also the kind of people that is a city that New Orleans can, can attract to live here. And mm-hmm. it's a city where you can only make money, you know, eight, nine months a year. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're going to attract different people. Yeah, that's true. Um, what else? What else you got on your wish list for tales there? I, I mean, that, that's a big part of it. I, 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 I wanted to mention that too. That and I'm glad you did it. That I really, I'm very, I'm grateful that the Solomon family and that you are the buyers. Uh, I, it could have gone a lot of different directions, and having that local interest is a huge relief. I've talked to people that uh, that represent different brands that there and the people who were, you know, everyone was as soon as it came up for sale, everyone had an idea of what they were going to do with it. And I heard people talk about, "Hey, you know what? If it were mine, I would make it like the Super Bowl and it would be a different host city every year." Mm-hmm. And the I, that just it scared the crap out of me, you know, that 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 was a real possibility. So kudos to both 
uh, the previous ownership and the new ownership for making sure that that's not how this is going to go because that would have been devastating for New Orleans and for the I think and yeah I would it scared me that that was a legitimate possibility for a while so yeah, it scared me too yeah well I'm definitely looking forward to um, just being a little more progressive definitely want to invest more into the New Orleans bar scene as well and this, all the service yeah. professionals. Um, I, I really feel that right now we do have a certain crop of new bartenders coming up at the moment. Um, there's a little bit of a lack of direction. Like when we were learning how to bartend and, and you know, cutting our teeth cold, like we had the Museum of the American Cocktail every month we'd go to and we'd be able to learn from people. And it was like a good community effort. And like, you know, the USBG is definitely there as well. But I think that we need a little bit of a nucleus and we need these resources in place because, you know, some of these, some of us bartenders were like wanting to move into different roles. Like, I want to open up a board game shop one day that might not serve alcohol. It's like, you know, like we, we need to move on and we can't be bartending forever. And there have to be people who are looking to step in here and bring fresh perspective to keep this industry and this city particularly like, you know, fresh and up to date and new and interesting and exciting. Well, I also think there's something that, that just struck me is that. You know, it's it's hard to appreciate something until you until you almost lose it. And I think that, you know, I would ask anybody that's in the service industry in New Orleans to really think about um, what what tales means to you and and really redouble our effort to make sure that people that are coming in town feel really well taken care of this year and mm-hmm. years moving forward, because it is a very important part about you know of, of how we how we make a living over the summer. And it's uh, you know I, I just. You know, for me, I'm just I find myself really grateful yeah. for it to be around. And I would challenge anybody who is a detractor at this moment. Like this is like a fresh start for the indi- for, for this industry as well too. So find out how you can get involved. You know, like this is like Neil's a very approachable person. We asked if he wanted to come on the show earlier this week. You know, that doesn't mean like email Neil and be like, I well, think Dale should dot to dot. And and look, I mean, I'm on Facebook. Um, you know, my email is neil at kiernola.com. Oh, and you can is. reach him either at N-E-A-L or N-E-I-L, which is not how he spells his name, <laughs> but he has both just in case. <laughs> and so, I mean, and right now we're listening. So if, if, there's, if there's stuff that you want to see addressed, you know, by all means, reach out. I mean, I want to hear it. Yeah, yeah. You, to you're never going to fix tales by complaining about it to your friends. Yeah, you got to complain about it to the people that have the power. And, and they are listening. They, even, though, even the previous tales was listening. Not yeah. everyone reached out. But they want to hear what's going wrong and what's going right. So do it. Yep. Step up. Anywho, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up this show. We uh, we that was almost like parting. We shots. We already got but, our parting shots. In, yeah, we'll call that parting shots for the day. All right, All right. Uh, Neil. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's great to have you uh, again. We'll probably have you on again at some point in the future. Because yeah, I hope so. We're running out of material. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. We've got so much material. I promise. <laughs> What you got for us, Cole? Uh, nah, I think we covered most of what I wanted to talk about today. Thank you again, Neil, for joining us. And thank you again, everyone, for tuning in for your downloads. We always appreciate that, too, loyal listeners. Absolutely. This has been Around with Stephen Cole. I'm Stevie Mata. I'm T. Cole Newton. We'll see you next time. Cheers. Theme music for Around with Stephen Cole is by Derek Freeman. Support for Around with Stephen Cole comes from Infinium Spirits, a family-owned spirits company specializing in the import, sales, and marketing of its distinctive portfolio of brands. Infinium Spirits, igniting brands. Thanks again to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. I can tell by your body.
always been a hottie. I really 